please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and I would like to invite you to reply, thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have, forgotten, all have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Thank you, Wesla, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. Glad that you are here uh, for us, joining us with worship at the King's Church. Uh, my name is Ian. I've had a chance to meet you. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and excited to open up God's Word for us today. Uh, but before we do so, at this time, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids. So preschool in our K-1 classroom, you guys can head to the doors. There should be some people with some signs, just like that. So K-1 on this side. Preschool over here on this side. Elementary uh, students, glad that you are with us uh, here this morning. Uh, and if you need some clipboards or anything to help you kind of follow along during the sermon, we've got those in the uh, connection room. So parents, just so you are uh, aware of that as well. All right, well, the theme this morning has kind of been joy and gladness here as we come to church. And then we just read Ecclesiastes. So how are we feeling now? Uh, this is uh, week two of our Ecclesiastes series, and uh, it is intentional. We are, uh, as much as I can help it, going to land at Joy this morning. Uh, but we're going to go on a little journey here in week two with the preacher who we introduced last week. And just to be completely honest with you, I was really struggling uh, with the sermon introduction this week. You know, I try to come up front with uh, something that is 
relevant to the passage. Maybe that creates a problem or uh, my favorite word, some tension uh, for us here in this room. Uh, maybe ask you a question to be thinking about. And I was just struggling this week and I was uh, just going through my phone trying to clear out all the notifications one day. You ever get to that point in your phone where you're like, all right, I need to deal with this, right? So I'm trying to clear out all the notifications and I get way more news notifications than I ever really need to. It's just a personal confession right now. But uh, I saw this news notification from Time Magazine. And the title was just this. It said, Andrew Garfield, the, the actor, wants to solve the world's epidemic of meaninglessness. It's like, well... That feels relevant to what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes, so you better believe I clicked on that article, opened it up, and it brings up this uh, interview with Andrew Garfield on the red carpet of Time's 100 Most Influential People of 2022. They had a big gala, and uh, Andrew Garfield made the list, and they're doing all these interviews with these actors and celebrities, uh, titans, innovators, and leaders was the tagline, okay? And then they ask all of these people dressed up, ridiculous, on the red carpet, what are the most pressing challenges our world is facing right now? Which I think is pretty humorous, just myself, okay? And then he answered, well, there might be an epidemic of meaninglessness going on. And then he suggested that we ought to solve that by looking to philosophers and poets and artists to be reminded of our interconnectedness with the ground and the earth itself. And he said, otherwise, we are bound to fall into an abyss of nihilism and meaninglessness. Now, while that answer certainly has a bit of a uh, 2022 kind of flair on it, I do want to suggest that in one sense, he is exactly right, isn't he? This feeling of meaninglessness and how to solve it is exactly what the preacher embarks on in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's precisely what we're stepping into in our text today. If you missed last week, and I rarely do this, but I would encourage you, go back and listen to last week's sermon because it served as the introduction to what is a very challenging book in the Bible, this book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we looked at the thesis statement from this figure, the preacher as he's known, the primary voice that we hear, either King Solomon or someone writing in a Solomonic tradition. And Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3, just by way of reminder, is his thesis statement. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher is struck by the vanity of life. Vanity literally means smoke or a vapor. It's a metaphor that confronts us with the fact that life is both short and it is elusive. It is fleeting and it's often an enigma. And after all your work, all of your time, all of your existence here in life under the sun, what do you gain from it all? The short answer is uh, nothing. I'm glad you're here this morning. The joy, there's joy in the house of the Lord, right? We're here, okay? Now, in the face of this smoke-like nature of life, the preacher, he sets out on a quest. He sets out on a journey to try to make sense, to try to bring about significance, to bring about meaning in a life that doesn't seem to have any meaning. And so what he does over these next uh, few weeks that we're going to be walking through this book is he goes on a pursuit of some gainless joys, some gainless pursuits. He's trying to find wisdom. He's trying to pursue pleasure. He's even looking at his work and his toil, and he's asking those things to explain to him the smoke-like nature of life. He is looking for them to squeeze out more than, quite frankly, they actually can give. 
And so the first of those pursuits today that we want to look at is the vanity of wisdom. The vanity of wisdom. If you're like, wait a minute, I thought wisdom was a good thing, you're starting to get Ecclesiastes. Good job. The vanity of wisdom. Here's our main idea this morning, and I'm going to pray, because uh, we need wisdom from the Lord to understand this. So let me give you our main idea, then we're going to pray. Wisdom under the sun is limited, so we must pursue wisdom from above in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom under the sun is limited, so we must pursue wisdom from above in the fear of the Lord. Let's go before the Lord, ask him to help our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come before you as a, a needy people this morning, uh, in need of a reminder of uh, what is ultimately true about the world we live in, what is true about you, and what is true about ourselves. And so I pray that you would use this uh, challenging book of Ecclesiastes and these passages we're looking at today uh, to remind us of the truth uh, that is found in you. I pray as we think about things of wisdom and knowledge and information and learning that we would rightly approach that, not in a way that asks too much of this world, but ultimately rests in faith at your feet. So Holy Spirit, may you give us right now ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Help us to see the good news of Christ, even in a passage like this from Ecclesiastes, and may you warm our hearts with worship and gratitude on the other side of that. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we walk through these two sections, I want to look at the quest of wisdom, then the limitations of wisdom, and then we are going to land at the enjoyment of wisdom at the end. Let's begin with the quest. Look back with me at the text at verses 12 and 13. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. As the preacher is wrestling with the vanity of life, he is going to seek out by the means of wisdom all that is done under heaven. He is determined to make sense of the vapor of this life. He is looking for significance and meaning in the midst of the futility he feels in life under the sun. And we should note the power of the voice that's speaking here. If anybody were to go out on a pursuit to seek all that is done under heaven, Solomon's a pretty good figure. Just think about King Solomon for a minute. Uh, John Amucheka says uh, he is like this. Imagine someone with the wealth of Warren Buffett, the business sense and savvy of Jay-Z, sprinkled with the prestige of Oprah, and topped off with the power and respect of your favorite president. He's all that and more. And this rings true of the teacher or the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Not only does he have great wisdom, but he has access to anything and everything under the sun. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, For what can the man do who comes after the king? Uh, I think that's a bit of what we would call today a, uh, a humble brag. You know what a humble brag is? He's kind of like, hey, whoever's coming after me, good luck. Right? I've got a unique vantage point to search this all out. So a man of that stature sets out on a quest by wisdom to explain it all. And I want to pause right there. What is the allure? What is the appeal of this kind of quest? How might you and I in this room, who are not those things, listen, you're cool, okay? You're not those things, right? How can us who are not those things get caught up in this same kind of quest? When we face the frustrations of life, what is the temptation that is before us here? 
Let's think of it this way. The preacher sets off pursuing wisdom for the sake of wisdom itself. The preacher is pursuing wisdom for the sake of wisdom itself. And he is looking to this wisdom and to this kind of learning and to this kind of knowledge to regain some kind of control over his life. He's trying to explain that elusive nature that seems to just slip out of his grasp over and over again. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we completely understand that temptation, don't we? When we feel like life is spinning a bit out of control and unraveling on us, we can set off on a quest for wisdom and knowledge and information. We can try to find all the right answers to the questions we're encountering, and then we sort of apply them like a medicine to the complexities of our life. How often have you thought, well, if I just had more information, this would make sense. If I just had enough knowledge, if I just learned enough about this thing that's bothering me, then I'll be okay. If I just know enough, then I can get back a sense of control over the elusive things that are slipping out of my grasp. And brothers and sisters, I want to propose this morning that there's a massive problem with that approach to life. You see, the Bible talks about two kinds of wisdom. You can see this in James chapter 3 in the New Testament, for example. There's a wisdom that James says is from above. It's a good and godly wisdom. It's a true and lasting wisdom. Or... There's a wisdom that is from below. May I suggest a wisdom that is under the sun. It's a kind of grasping for knowledge and information that is ultimately a desire to take the place of God himself. And James rightly calls that wisdom from below earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Why does he call it demonic? Well, think back to Genesis 3 for just a moment. The serpent shows up, and what does he tempt Adam and Eve with? He looks at Eve and he says, if you eat of that tree, what will happen? Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how James then draws that connection. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, because it's the exact ploy of Satan himself. There's an allure before us to try to grasp for control by means of wisdom so that we might be like God, so that we might deal with the problems that our life of futility here often confronts us with. And that kind of wisdom is out of touch with reality. It cannot deliver what we're asking it to deliver. The temptation of this request is before us, and Solomon Let him be, this either Solomon or this figure in the tradition of Solomon, let him be a test case for us. What happens if you set yourself up in that way? Well, here's the answer. Second half, verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, what does he find? All of it is smoke. It's all vanity and a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 12 says, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. He sought after all of these things, and what did he find? That his flesh was weary. It is like striving after the wind. Listen, if we saw someone out in our parking lot trying to catch the wind with their hands, we'd be a little concerned about them, right? Might call somebody, might try to get them some help. But let's be honest, how often are our lives aimed in a direction that is just striving after the wind? 
It's trying to catch something in the net that cannot be caught. And I want to suggest that there's a little word in here that's helping us see true wisdom. Notice that he says it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. Last week we talked about not viewing life as a gain, but as a gift. And God here, according to this figure, the preacher, has given to us this exact frustration. How does that make you feel this morning? God has given to you a frustration that you just can't figure it out. Do you see that as a gift from the Lord? Probably not yet, but hopefully we will. God has given that to the children of man to be busy with, to be weary with. And what happens is when we finally feel the weight of that, you know what happens? We realize that wisdom is limited, that wisdom has limitations, that you can actually be too smart for your own good, as the saying goes. And when we embrace those limitations, we actually then can begin to make the shift away from that earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom to a true and lasting wisdom. Because this is the quest that he is on, and it ends up being striving after the wind. Smoke. Vanity. So let's talk about the limits of wisdom. Now let me just say this to be crystal clear from up front. He is not advocating that you pursue folly. Okay? Do not leave here and say, well, my pastor said I can do whatever I want this week. Foolishness is embraced. No, no, no. That is not what I'm saying, and that is not what this uh, preacher is telling you. Okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his, head in his, has his eyes in his head. He's being thoughtful, but the fool walks in darkness. Nobody wants to walk in darkness. You're stumbling around. We should not embrace foolishness. But while foolishness is not the answer, wisdom itself is limited. And I want to suggest that he runs into three limitations on this quest. The first is this. Wisdom can't change the curse. Wisdom can't change the curse. Look at verse 15 in chapter 1. It's meant to be a little summary statement. It's poetic. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. We live in what is called the information age. Uh, I said it last week. If you wanted to view all of the information uploaded to the internet in just the last 24 hours, it would take longer than the span of recorded human history to do so. We live in the information age. We have instantaneous access to whatever facts or questions we might have, and we have it right here in our hands, don't we? I mean, it takes us about two minutes to become amateur doctors on WebMD. And by the way, we're all dying then, right? Uh, it takes 30 seconds to pull up because we live in Florida, uh, the radar for the day, and we all become amateur meteorologists. Uh, I have a thing for random sports statistics. I think it's because I watched SportsCenter over and over again instead of cartoons as a child, right? Uh, I can find whatever information I need just like that. Information is truly unlimited to us, but knowing more things about the world, knowing more facts about the way things around us are going, does it really ever change anything? You could point to a few things maybe, but in the grand scheme of it, all of this information, does it actually change the things that are crooked in our world? I don't think so. The frustrating reality of life that we all feel, if we're honest, is that there are things in this crooked world that frustrate us, that just defy explanation, don't they? 
This world is in need of straightening out, and we lack the power to make that happen because we are not God. We are longing for what life looked like in the Garden of Eden, but we have no way to produce it in our own power. Something is broken, and wisdom and facts and knowledge cannot fix that. It can't change the curse. Secondly, wisdom can't explain the enigma. Look at verses 16 and 17, chapter 1. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. It's a bit nuanced here, but the preacher uh, by wisdom, wants to investigate, he says, madness and folly. Here, I don't think he's looking for general information. What he's asking is, why does this world not work? Why is there sin? Why is there brokenness? Why is there moral right and moral wrong? And why does that sometimes not fall into neat categories? And as he pursues that, he ends up in the same dead end. It is all striving after when the enigma of life is still there, the pursuit of knowledge in this way will not fulfill your quest to explain all that is good and evil in this world. Uh, Philip Ryken uh, summarizes like this. I don't have this on the screen, so just listen. There are many things in life that we wish we could fix, but can't, any more than we can repair a crumpled fender using our bare hands. We suffer long-standing family conflicts, estrangement between former friends, Wrongs done to us by someone in power, disease or disability, our own moral failings, the accidents we cause, the list goes on and on. There is always something in life we wish we could bend back in shape. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot bend our lives in a different direction. There are people we cannot manage, problems we cannot solve, pressures we cannot escape. And if you feel that this morning... You're in good company. You're living life in reality. You're feeling what it's like to live under the sun. Wisdom can't change the curse, and wisdom can't explain the enigma. And then thirdly, and most significantly, wisdom can't defeat death. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The wise person, as I said, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived the same event happens to all of them. What's that same event? Death. Look at verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. This idea of death is a massive theme in Ecclesiastes. It shows up over and over again. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what your life looks like. It doesn't matter if you live wisely or foolishly. The great equalizer of death is coming for all of us. The mortality rate is still one-to-one -one on a grand scale. The wise and the fool are both going to die, and when they die, just as a happy reminder, nobody's going to remember them. So the preacher's like, why am I striving after this kind of wisdom? It's all vanity. It's all smoke. You could spend your whole life pursuing degrees, pursuing education, 
memorizing facts, trying to climb the ladder of just being wise and knowing things. You could accomplish quite a bit in this regard and it all could be taken away like that. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's an uncomfortable book. At minimum, it's sobering. Jesus himself used this kind of language, by the way, in Luke 13. He's uh, inviting people to repentance, and he says this, talking about an event that happened. He says, are those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? He's saying, do you think just because that kind of natural thing, that disaster happened, that tragedy happened, that they were more sinners than others? He's stepping into that complexity. And it's when the preacher begins to run up against this that he comes to a place of honest lament. And I want to camp out here for a minute because I think the whole book of Ecclesiastes is an invitation to honest lament. Last week we said it is like a sacred lament. I think it helps us to sit in that lament for a minute so that we can make the turn from a foolish kind of wisdom, which does exist, to true and lasting wisdom. Look at the summary statements that the preacher makes. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the winds. The preacher says, the more that I knew, the more that I gained wisdom, the more I was sad. To the point where he says that he hated life because of all the grievous things that are done under the sun. Now again, this language makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't usually hear Christians talking like this. I mean, if your friend walked up and was like, I just hate life, how do we tend to respond to that? We usually think there's uh, maybe some immaturity at play, like, oh, maybe this person's like, got some depression going on, like, maybe they're burned out, like, maybe this preacher needs a sabbatical, like, I don't know, I don't know, like, he hates life? But here's the thing, those who are truly gaining wisdom don't pretend like everything is just fine in this world. Those who are truly wise don't act like everything is normal and fine because, brothers and sisters, it's not. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. All of us have a deep sense of that reality. We might turn it off. We might distract ourselves from it. We might pursue other things to just cover our ears and act like that's not the case, but it is just the case. We talked last week that Ecclesiastes is like a sharp pin that just burst the bubble of the illusions we might want to have in this life. The truly wise are realistic and sober about life in a fallen world. But notice the preacher doesn't say he hates God. He says he hates life. And there's a difference between those things. He is lamenting living in a fallen world. And brothers and sisters, I want to maybe encourage you this morning, maybe even free you up this morning that you actually are invited to do the same. In the face of evil, in the face of tragedy, in the face of frustrations, in the face of horrible wickedness and injustice, in the face of whatever the next national tragedy is going to be, it feels like it's weekly right now, we are freed up before the Lord to lament, to be honest. The truly wise take up the posture of lament because you know why? We can't think our way out of those things. 
We can't information our way there. You can't go get a degree that's going to solve that deep longing that things are not the way they're supposed to be. So what do we do? We lament. We pray a very honest prayer. We cry out about the things that are not right. After all, this is what our Savior did, didn't he? Jesus comes and he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he thinks back about all of the horrible injustices that have taken place there. And what does he do? He weeps over the city. His friend Lazarus dies. Even though he's going to raise him from the dead, he shows up at the tomb. What does he do? He doesn't give platitudes. He doesn't give cliches. He doesn't just say, oh, it's going to be okay. No, he weeps. The Greek there is he snorts in anger like a horse would snort. He's lamenting the way life is. He's angry. He knows it's not supposed to be this way. Have you ever gotten to that place? I want to encourage you, that's, that's an okay place to be. We all should be at that place at some point. Maybe this will help you. Zach Eswine, in his uh, great book, Recovering Eden, says this. He says, the wise, the truly wise, learn not to fear revealing what is true about their despair or hatred. God's character and covenants anchor their voice and make every feeling and thought, no matter how beautiful or foul, a matter for prayer for God to enter. The wise learn to manage life not by frantically trying to glue together the knocked over vase, but by gathering up all the shattered, jagged pieces and powdered dust from the floor and bringing them to God. Maybe this morning your life looks like a shattered vase. There's jagged, dangerous pieces everywhere. There's powder dust. And I want to encourage you, just take that before God. In honest lament, cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. True wisdom leads us to lament that life is the way that it is. And embracing the limits of wisdom means that the truly wise will accept that from the hand of God rather than struggle against it, rather than grasp for that control that's not actually control, rather than trying to catch the wind and thinking that if I just knew more things, then life would make sense. It's not. It's not going to make sense. And when we realize that, when we stop that pursuit that's not getting what we want it to give us, then we can actually get to our third point. We can actually get to just the simple enjoyment of wisdom. Viewing wisdom for what it is, not asking it to make us some kind of God that we cannot be. When we realize the vanity of wisdom for wisdom's sake, we are in a position to receive and enjoy true wisdom. When we realize that life is not to be conquered for degrees, when we realize that our knowledge is not meant to yield control over all things, when we realize that life is not gain but a gift, we can step into this wisdom. Now, what does that actually look like? As we close, I want to look at three things. What does this lasting wisdom look like? The first is it looks like the fear of the Lord. Now, skip ahead in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I want to read verses 16 through 18. These are great verses. I quoted these last week. These are one of these that you're like, this is in the Bible. Are you sure? It's right here. You look at it with me. Don't trust me. Look at it, okay? Verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Then what does he say? 
it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I think he's creating some categories for us there. He's saying there's a kind of wisdom that grasps for control that's no wisdom at all. Don't pursue that. Don't be overly wise in your own sight. And don't pursue folly. You could end up dead before you're supposed to. Don't do that. Instead, the one who comes out of those categories is the one who fears the Lord. I think it says elsewhere from Solomon in Proverbs 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. To fear the Lord is to let God be God. It's to take yourself off that pedestal. It's to stop our questing for control. And instead of trying to answer our way through life, through knowledge, we simply trust in faith that God is in control. And fearing the Lord means that we trust that God is not only great, that he actually has the credentials to oversee this frustrating life that we live in, but also that he's good. That we can trust him to do so. That he is at work in the mess, even when we have a hard time seeing that might be the case. We take up a posture of fearing the Lord. It is the beginning of wisdom. We let God be God. We stop grasping for that role, and we humbly yield. We humbly yield. The second thing is that we are to embrace limitations. Because it's precisely when we embrace those limitations that we enjoy life. Uh, David Gibson says it well. He says, living under the sun, believers are happy to take comfort in knowing that they do not know. We learn, perhaps through great pain, to be deeply content with not knowing. To know all there is about everything there is to know. To know it in all the ways and at all the right times so that I have every bit of relevant data in front of me. Well, that is the kind of control over the world Ecclesiastes has been teaching me to surrender. I cannot know And so I don't have to know. Somebody here needs to hear that this morning. I cannot know, and so I don't have to know. The wisest thing you can do is realize that not even being wise will tell you everything you want to know. Some of you need that freedom this morning. Embrace your limitations so that you might actually enjoy life. Take heart. Limits are okay. They are God's grace to us to trust him, to fear him, and to enjoy life for what it is. And then lastly, we pursue wisdom that is from above. James 3, verse 17 tells us that this wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Don't you want that kind of wisdom? We should. We should pray for leaders with that kind of wisdom. We should pray that in the midst of the information age that seems to have made us uh, really good with facts and really bad with wisdom, that that kind of wisdom would flourish. But here's what I want us to see as we close this morning. We need a realization that if we want that kind of wisdom from above, we need to realize that that wisdom actually came down from above. That that wisdom from above that is marked by those things is an incarnate wisdom. That when we think about the truly wise, when we think about a wisdom that lasts, we must think of what Paul says is the wisdom and power of God himself, which is Jesus Christ. If we want wisdom from above, then we must learn wisdom from wisdom incarnate. We must learn wisdom from Jesus. 
After all, Jesus was the one who told his followers that for all the wisdom that Solomon had, something greater than Solomon has come. And Jesus comes and he takes the so-called wisdom of the world, and what does he do? He flips it upside down. Jesus comes and he offers grace upon grace to an undeserving people like you and me who have gone on this same quest for control, seeking a wisdom that is not ours to seek, And what does he do? He takes the foolishness of the cross and the surprising victory of the resurrection and he invites us into a life of true wisdom in light of that. He destroys the wisdom of the wise, Corinthians says. And he invites us into a life that goes beyond the sun. Yes, death is the great equalizer, but in the wisdom of God incarnate, death is not the end. And true wisdom is living for the life that is to come while we live here under the sun. Death does not have the final word for those in Christ. True wisdom in this life is living in a way that is real, living within reality, letting God be God, not trying to grasp after the smoke, and it's thinking about the life that is to come. That longing deep within our souls, that angst, that aching for Eden. Listen, one day that will be dealt with. One day life under this sun will end. And what will happen at that time? Jesus will make all things new. We will live in a garden city, a renewed Eden, where what we see now dimly will be face to face. It'll be clear as day. And all of our striving after what we did not need to strive after will end. Listen, the invitation this morning is this. What if we pursued wisdom not just for wisdom's sake? What if we pursued wisdom so that we might live in God's world in God's way? What if we pursued wisdom humbly so we might worship true wisdom? What if we pursued wisdom in a way that leads us to a worship with our hands freed up from the clench over our lives or over our minds, and we simply let God be God? The wisdom of God came incarnate and he came running after us so that we might be freed up from the shackles of this kind of quest. So this morning, if you're getting to the end of yourself, that's good news. Look to Jesus. Think about the life that is to come. Lament this world. Pray an honest prayer. And then let's not be too wise for our own good. Let's not be overly wise. Let's yield ourselves in humility to our Savior who is good and is great. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would free us up from the hamster wheel of wanting to know more things. That you would release from us this endless quest to want to explain away the frustrations and the futility and the smoke of this life. Pray that you would humble us, that you would show us the places where we are trying to do that, where we're grasping for a control and a wisdom that is just downright sinful, that is seeking to take your place so that we might have some allure of control. Show us reality. Holy Spirit, reveal the truth to us in that. And may you, because of the kindness of our Savior, wisdom in the flesh, may you draw us to repentance. May we turn away from the striving after the wind and may we set our feet on the solid ground of the good news of Jesus Christ. As a church family here, 
May we not be those who are overly righteous in a prideful way, seeking to be too wise in our own lives, but may we yield to you as king who is ruling and reigning and controlling and overseeing all things right now, and it's going just fine. Help us to lean into that and trust that in faith. For those who do not know that truth, for those who are striving after the wind and are getting to the end of themselves, may you turn on their eyes of faith to see and to run to you, Jesus. We beg you in his name. Amen.